take back up for a short time this study again uh, in the book of uh, Goldsworthy's Goldsworthy's trilogy, uh, and uh, we take that up in this uh, second section. This uh, the second book of the trilogy is uh, is one is called the Gospel in Revelation, and of course he's dealing with the first. Uh, He's actually dealing with what he's been dealing with all along, and that is the matter of interpretation. The first first chapter is on the principles of revelation, and he he says his title there in that chapter on page one fifty five is uh, the key to understanding revelation, or I, I I put it a different way. I I say what he's actually doing here is the book of Revelation as a study, as a study of these principles of interpretation. <clears throat> and uh, it's important to note, I won't read it, but there in his preface, it's, uh, uh, it's important to note that he does not intend in this second book, he is not intending to do a uh, a an interpretation of the book of Revelation. This is not a commentary on the book of Revelation. That is not what he is intending to do. His subject is is the matter of interpretation, uh, but preeminently his actual subject is showing how that Christ is Christ is the subject of all revelation, that it's all about revealing Christ. That's what Goldsworthy's uh, design and intent is. So although we're going to take the book of Revelation and look at the book of Revelation, he is not looking at it for the purpose of of, uh, delivering a commentary on the book of Revelation. So it... uh, the book of Revelation, he points out in his in his writing, he points out that the book of Revelation contains more Old Testament quotations than any other New Testament book. It, it preserve, and then he also he expresses himself this way. He said it preserves the Old Testament literary idioms and thought patterns. Uh, I'm not a linguistic scholar enough to either uh, approve or deny that, but I have heard, I have read that in other places besides Goldmark, uh, that the book of Revelation uh, quite uh, emphatically mirrors Old Testament expression uh, more than any of the other uh, books in of the New Testament. By way of introduction on page 154, Goldsworthy says, the book of Revelation seems to occupy one of two, and I put the word opposite. It seems to occupy one of two opposite positions in most people's affections. Either it is almost totally neglected, or it is elevated to a prominence shared by no other biblical book. Those do seem to be the two extremes 
in which we find most uh, professing Christendom to be in one or the other of these two extremes. Now you can understand immediately from that brief wording of his introduction there where he's going. He's going, <laughs> he's going for this matter of interpretation. And he's going to show that it's interpretation is the reason for these two extremes. He says, uh, as to the former position, that is, it's totally neglected, the reasons are not hard to imagine. Apart from the letters to the seven churches in chapter 2 and 3, the book is almost entirely given over to exotic and florid literary forms. The weird visions coupled with the constant use of Old Testament images and ideas put the book in the too hard category for many ordinary readers. So because of their interpretive, uh, their, their inability and insufficiency in method of interpretation, because their interpretation is weak, their power of interpretation is weak, they just discard the book. It, they just reckon it's too hard to deal with. Few Christians today are used to reflecting on their existence and its meaning in terms of seven-headed beasts and apocalyptic horsemen. Since the idioms of Revelation are so strange to us, we tend rather to concentrate on those parts of the New Testament which come to us in the straightforward form of letters and narratives. Then, neglect of Revelation is also paradoxically related to the fact that there are those who seem to give it undue prominence. That's the other extreme. When the modern prophets, he's being sarcastic here, of course, when the modern prophets and futuristic gurus have finished their extraordinary explanation of every visionary detail and, every, and have mapped out the most complex chain of events due to start just about any time now, the ordinary reader is frightened almost out of his wits. His fright is not so much caused by the awful events that are imminent, but by the measure of expertise required to interpret the intricacies of this unusual and unfamiliar book. Better leave it to the specialists. <laughs> So they wind up also neglecting the book because, you know, and, and who were the, I don't remember, you know, in our day in the 70s, there were these gurus who were interpreting uh, the book of Revelation uh, and they wrote books on on it. And uh, it, it, you, you went to prophecy conferences. There were prophecy conferences and that's where the gurus came together to share their great light with those of us that were commoners. And uh, so that, that's, that's one attitude toward the book of Revelation. Then he says, and of course, it works the other way too. By vacating the interpretive arena, pastors, teachers, and their flock leave a vacuum which looks very inviting to someone 
who desires the prophet's mantle. To be an expert on things to come is a sure way to fame and sometimes to fortune. And he's exactly right. He's exactly right. This is exactly what has happened in in modern times with our treatment of the book of Revelation. It is these gurus rise up and they're filling a void. And the void is that the common people feel they can't interpret the book. They don't have the skill. They don't have the gift from God. And so they just leave it. So along come these gurus and they fill that vacuum. And uh, what, what an interesting and I think accurate explanation of how the book of uh, Revelation has been handled, certainly in uh, our generation. <clears throat> There's a statement on top of page 158 that he begins to bring us back into focus as to what he's actually uh, here to do, what he's writing for. He said, whether men acknowledge it or not, the coming of Christ to live, die, and rise again is the goal of all history. That's it. That's absolutely it. Why did God even create a world at all? He intended to create a world in which he would create creatures in his image and they would inhabit the halls of his heaven for eternity, worshiping him. And that was his design. So then the whole purpose of it all is culminated and founded on the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Christ is the center of all history. As to the principles of uh, interpretation, as to the principles of interpretation, there's a brief summary given to that, page 158. In talking about principles of interpretation, I do not want to give the impression that there is some secret key which unlocks all. There is a key, but it is not secret. Nor do I want to suggest that it is a wholly technical matter which removes interpretation from the grasp of the simple-minded and the theologically untrained. All disciplines and specialization of interest have some technical terms. Now, I appreciated what Goldsworthy is doing here. He's saying to his reader, look, let's just go ahead and go ahead and talk about the elephant in the room. Let's dismiss this notion that the interpretation of the Bible is, is, is something that requires some secret key that only some select few have. That's one of the biggest, I think, one of the biggest uh, maladies, fallacies in the whole of uh, fundamentalism. That whole genre of denomination fosters this idea that God has an elect few men to whom he talks and they can understand the scriptures and none of us could ever understand it like that. And so we just have to sit at their feet and, and let them, let them, let us in on it. Uh, and he says, let's just go ahead. Let's just go ahead and get this out and open here. There is no 
sacred key. There is a key, but it is not sacred. And there are technical terms. There are technical terms and technical things to learn about interpretation. But then he says, that's true of everything. That's true of everything. Listen, he said, a housewife tells me that she is a simple person and not up to any theological technicalities. Have any of you ever heard that? That's money from anybody. <laughs> ever heard that? <laughs> and then turns without a thought to operate the latest in sewing machine gadgetry or to interpret without a mistake a knitting pattern which makes Egyptian hieroglyphics pale into insignificance. <laughs> Do you get the, the sarcasm with which he's proceeding here? The same woman will say, well, I, you know, I, don't, I, don't, I don't understand all that theological term. I don't need all that. No, that's, all, that's for them, not me. And then the same person. She's saying, I don't have anything to do with technical terms. I can't learn them. But then she turns right around and proves that that's not true. That's not true. A man tells me he's uneducated and not able to understand anything beyond the, quote, simple gospel. And then proceeds to tune a car engine with the aid of some very sophisticated electronics. More often than not, it is unfamiliarity, and I underlined and starred that word. More often than not, it's unfamiliarity which daunts us rather than inherent difficulty. If we are motivated, most of us can and do come to grips with technical terms and abstract ideas. The problem with us most, or at least those who would seek to relegate interpretation to the elite, the problem with them is not their inability. It's their unwillingness to discipline themselves to become familiar. There is intellectual laziness intellectual laziness they simply don't want to invest what's required to get a handle on it okay and that's the truth don't mean to be ugly or mean to anybody that's just the simple truth he just demonstrated in the case of a man and a woman how that their their claim that they're unable to do this or that or the other intellectually that's a lie. The truth is they just don't want to apply themselves. So then, with that introduction, he takes up some of the principles of, uh, of uh, interpretation and uh, at least some of the ideas, some of the, to use his words over here, technical terms. Some of the technical terms, some of the ideas that you need to invest the effort into familiarizing yourself with in order to go about interpretation. First one that is called is that you, he wants to point out is the literary idiom on top of page 159. And there's a footnote there that says idiom means 
use of language in a way distinct to a particular person or group. It can also mean, as it does here, one of a number of acceptable ways in which words are used to convey one idea. Now, a literary idiom, top of page 159, the subject matter, and I put, and the context of the author, the subject matter and the context of the author will frequently dictate the kind of literary expressions that are used in recording it. So when we read the Bible, you got to understand that each writer is likely using in his writing literary idioms. That is, terminology, expressions, phraseology that is common to them and in the context of their their lives and of the and of their writing. Verse uh, down at the bottom one fifty nine he says, Thus, when we are reading the Bible or any other ancient literature, we are likely to find that there is a considerable gap between our modern literary methods and those of the ancient author. We cannot ignore this gap and pretend it isn't there. On the other hand, let us not be discouraged. Much of this is a matter of being sensitive to the range of options open to any author. Sometimes we may need to dig a little into the background of some particular literary idiom in order to discover how it is used and with what intent. I find myself doing that constantly in reading, in the reading that I do, at least in the genre and age of the books that I read. I often find myself reading a phrase and knowing that I'm not crystal clear exactly what they meant by that. So I have to go and I start have to do a little research and do a little research on the words themselves. If you go and use uh, Webster's Great Old Dictionary and get the get the the meat, get the etymology of the words. That that means a lot is the etymology of the words. You look at a word and you want to know what it means, its etymology will tell you a great deal about what it actually means. So you just have to invest he says sometimes we need to dig a little, dig a little into the background of some particular literary expression in order to better understand it. The book of Revelation contains a number of different literary forms, each with its own characteristics and functions. The most obvious are letters, prophetic oracles, hymns of praise, and apocalyptic visions. These are all different literary forms. And they're all present in the book of Revelation. Then he says the principle of interpretation which emerges from this is that we must allow the author to use the literary conventions that exist for him in his time and culture and use them in the way that will suit his purpose. So this is, as you can see already, this is a this is this is work. This is work. This this is this is not 
a, a flippant reading. In fact, I, I was reading recently, uh, I think it's that book you bought me for that has these. I don't remember. Uh, or maybe Luke gave it down. I don't know. There, I have a book that are readings, what, not what we would call devotional readings. Okay. You, we all know what a devotional book, right? I mean, you get a devotional book and it's one, it's each page is a, is a scripture and a few thoughts. And then the next day it's another scripture, another few thoughts. Next day, blah, blah, blah. And uh, the, the author, someone had made the point. Uh, I, it may have been Goldsworthy. Someone has made the point that that, that genre of publication has done much to hurt biblical understanding. Because the, 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 the foundational idea there, the premise is wrong. The foundational idea is that you can pluck out a phrase out of a verse and that's all you need to know. That, that's, that should give you the, your, all the thoughts you need for that day and, and just pluck out the, and you took it right out of context with no background, with no interpretive effort at all, no, no labor of interpretation. And the, the point this author made, whoever it was, I'll probably remember later, what was making was that that, that genre of publication has actually hurt Christendom because it's made the believers think that all they need every day is just some little phrase. Just pluck a little phrase and that you're good to go. That's all of the word of God you need to know for today. I, I don't know what you think about that argument, but uh, it, it certainly is a thing to be considered. And because what Goldsworthy is doing here is precisely the opposite. He is making the point that, look, this matter of interpretation, this you're going to have to invest here. You're going to have to invest some some work, some some inch, some uh, word studies, uh, literary understanding. You're going to have to invest some things in this matter of interpretation. On the top of 161, he says the doctrine of the inspiration of the Bible is extremely important, but we must not misunderstand it. When John wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was still John. He continued to think and express himself in the thought forms and language patterns that were characteristically his. Uh, when I took 100 years ago uh, hermeneutics in college, there is that uh, method of inspiration. One of the theories of inspiration is the mechanical theory. The mechanical theory saying that God, basically God took took the man's hand and literally controlled his hand and he wrote exactly that's not a biblical view of how the scriptures were written. The mechanical interpretation. John was still John. Inspiration did not suspend the human personality but worked through it. Thus, when John chose, under the Spirit's inspiration, to write using the common literary forms of his day, he wrote according to the rules and conventions of a first century Jew. Our task in interpretation is to learn to recognize 
the different ways in which a first century Jew would write and how the different kinds of written expression function. Now, that's all work, right? <laughs> that's going to require input of effort. Then he says down there, one further thing needs to be said here. Some forms of literary expression are less familiar to us than others. The 20th century mind can cope more easily with letters and straight narrative than with apocalyptic vision. Added to this is the fact that apocalyptic vision, while often empowering symbolic, uh, employing symbolic features, which are frequently used and easily recognized to the person familiar with them, nevertheless may contain symbolisms which are either deliberately ambiguous or else obscured by our distance from them. When we encounter such difficulties in the biblical material, particularly when some background information still fails to yield a clear meaning, there is a simple principle that applies. We must allow the clearer text to take precedent over the more obscure. In particular terms, we cannot allow a point of doctrine to be established on an apop apocalyptic vision against clear statements to the contrary in the epistolary material of the New Testament. So, simple rule here. When we have done all our homework, we've invested the study all that we can with the resources we have in a text and we still are not very clear on its meaning, then we need to leave that, leave that and go to texts that are more clear on the same subject and that would give us clear, definitive doctrine. We're not going to base doctrine on something that is unclear and indistinct for us in its literary form. Okay? That's a very simple rule and one that makes total sense. The second principle is taken up on page 162, but would anybody like to comment or add to anything that we have said to this point about principles and literary idiom. On, on page, well, I'm sorry, what page? Okay, gotcha. Okay. Brother Gormley has Brother Gormley has a knack for stating the obvious. <laughs> no, that's good. No, that's absolutely right. No, you're right. Uh, you're absolutely right. They can't. Yeah, they can't take the letters uh, or, or the plain statements at all. Not even. Not even the letters and the, <laughs> and the words. That's absolutely true. It's very sad. I mean, we laugh. 
In some ways it is funny, but in other ways it's really not funny. It's very sad. I do that all the time. I play that game all the time because of the circles that my job puts me into. People with degrees will make a statement. It could be a statement about anything. Anything. It doesn't have to be politics or religion. Just make a statement about anything. And I and I just say, I just stop and say, I, I get this puzzle. You know how a little puppy dog does when he doesn't he turns his head like that? You know, I turn my head and I say, what does that mean? And they look at me and they're, they're blown away. It's like they don't even know what to say. They don't even know how to explain what they meant by something they said. <laughs> it's total confusion in their face. It's like they, they just stepped off a merry-go-round. They're dizzy or something. When all I said was, what does that mean? Well, I expect you to be able to tell me what it means. You made the statement. You know, I'm not even arguing with it. I just want to know what you mean. And they're just befuddled. And that goes to John's point precisely. They don't even understand the words and, and, the, and the sentences. That's very sad. And of course, that is a captivity, is it not, brother? That is a, that makes a people easily captive. They become slaves to someone else who's telling them what they need to think because they can't think for themselves anymore. And that's where we are in our culture for sure. But then I'll, I'll cover just a couple things quickly and we'll close. Uh, that second, uh, a second subject he takes up is to this matter of interpretation. Now don't forget what Goldsworthy's dealing with. He's talking in the backdrop of it all. He's actually talking about this matter of interpretation. Here's a very important rule on 162. The second principle that he takes up is what he calls the centrality of the gospel. Or I put it in my own words, Christ is the key. Whatever your interpretation work is done, Keep always this in the forefront of your mind. Christ is the center of whatever text you're reading. Christ is the centrality of it. He said our second principle interpretation is often the most neglected, yet is absolutely basic to proper understanding. Simply stated, this principle is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the key to the interpretation of the whole Bible. That is, Jesus Christ in his person and work gives the meaning of the whole Bible. And then you skip over to page 168 and the lamb and the lion and the apocalyptic vision, he takes that up. Now, the other, we on page 166, is uh and this is something goldsworthy uh that's just how his mind works he 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 graphs things uh I, I don't i've never done that i don't think that way some people do engineers different kinds of people but goldsworthy he 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 takes visual he takes concepts and to gives them a visual form by graphing and on page 166 
he takes up this whole matter of premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism, which is not a subject, as I said, we're not going to deal doctrinally with the book of Revelation or with prophecy. But that is one of the, this is an area, this matter of millennialism is a huge area, or sorry, it has been in modern history. It has been a huge area of interpretation, a matter of interpretation. Now, to show you that, premillennialism, as you can see, shows uh, Christ coming, uh, sorry, Christ, yes, Christ's first coming, and then he ascends back to heaven. Then we have this, this age that we're presently living in. Then premillennialism says that at the end of this age, Christ will come again, establish a millennium. At the end of that thousand years, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Now that's the premillennial position laid out in a graph. The amillennial position says he came, he ascended, then we have this modern age, and then somewhere toward the end of this age, a millennial sort of state of being will come to pass and it will gradually improve and 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 there is really there there is no there is no distinct millennium it's interpreted figuratively in their words i mean in their system and then of course eventually it reaches such a perfect state that christ comes back and and joins comes to the earth and there's new heaven and new earth the all millennial position says there is absolutely uh, no millennium as to a literal thousand years. This whole age that we're living in now is the millennial age, and Christ will come at the end of it. There is no millennium. Now, understand that that is a way far oversimplistic explanation of these views. I accept that. But as I say, we're not teaching on the doctrine of millennialism. We're talking about interpretation. Now, if you read after men who are premillennial, read after men who are amillennial, read after men who are postmillennial, you will find, as they express their views on the millennial subject, you will find that the difference between them is altogether a matter of interpretive principles. How they're hermeneutic. What is their hermeneutic? How do they interpret the Bible? That's where that's where you'll see the distinction uh, between those men. I'll give you this, and we'll close after it. The on page one sixty eight, he takes up again the centrality of the gospel. Really, is the subject. He says apocalyptic was a form of religious writing that became very popular amongst the Jews from about 2nd century B.C. One of its characteristics was that the visionary related how he received a revelation from God and then told and then and was then told to write it on a scroll and seal it to the time the reeling to come. The publication of the scroll would mean that the time had come that the secrets were out. John recalls this characteristic in Revelation 5. The scroll contains the message of God, the truth about the kingdom. But who's able to re- reveal it? John weeps because none's found worthy to reveal the truth about God and his kingdom. And so it seems it must remain sealed. But then he's given good news. 
There is one who has triumphed and is therefore able to open the scroll. Now you see how he's tying for you. He's showing how in the book of Revelation, this 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 subject, this thing that is happening and told there, how that it is, he's contextualizing it and showing how that the this was the con the context of that was apocalyptic form. The apocalyptic form in literature, not just in the Bible, in the secular pagan writings, this apocalyptic form was a type of writing in which there was a vision from God. It was the person was then told to write that down and seal it. And then they were told that at the appropriate time it would be unsealed and it could be read out when it was time for it to come to pass. Well, we come over to the book of Revelation, and here is John employing that very technique. Here is represented the warrior king, fresh from battle, with blood of the foe upon his sword. He's invincible, glorious in his conquest. He's filled, he is filled, has filled with terror all who would resist him, etc., etc. And so John sees, turns and sees the lamb. He sees no such figure of glory and majestic power. Uh, he sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And so he goes on and on. And he's talking about the fact that in this apocalyptic setting, John looks and here is one who is worthy to open the book. What is the book? It's the revelation. The, what's in this role? Revelation. Revelation of the end times. Well, who is it that's going to open this role? Who can break the seal of it? The Lord Jesus Christ. And that's his point. His point is Christ is the centrality of all revelation. He is the centrality of all of revelation. And in that in that vision, in that writing in the book of Revelation, you see it. John is showing it to us. He's taking advantage of that apocalyptic form and saying, look, here's the role. We searched all over heaven. Who can open this role? Christ, the Lamb, the Lamb can open the roll. And so he does. You are worthy to take the scroll, he says, and open the seals thereof because you were slain. And here is the gospel. The gospel in the book of Revelation. Then he says, if we would unlock the meaning of Revelation, it must be by means of the fact that Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry of redemption is the true and revealing word of God. Revelation, like every other book in the New Testament, is an exposition of the gospel. It may emphasize certain implications of the gospel, but it is about the gospel all the same. All right? Nothing 
but Christ. The centrality of the gospel. And that is a principle of interpretation that is so critical. And that's why I've taken up this book. That's why I've taken up this study. To impress and re-impress and re-impress on your mind the centrality of Christ in in the matter of interpretation. Scriptures are about Christ. And if you lose that, you've lost everything. All right? Thank you so much. Let's pray together and dismiss.